him, following his journey of faith. And here along the way, certainly we have seen many highs and lows on Abraham's journey. But today we come to a, a low, I suppose. Might appear like a low anyway, because today we say goodbye to the covenant mother. Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah, passes from life to death in Genesis chapter 23. But in this place of death, like God loves to do, one of God's promises begins to find its first glimmer of fulfillment. God is in the business of bringing life where there is death, and we see just a little glimmer of this beginning in chapter 23. Abraham comes to possess a tiny portion of the promised land, the land God promised to him, his first possession within it. And the way that it comes to Abraham, I think, is in a very unexpected way, certainly not a way that he would have expected to be receiving a portion of the promised land. So as we walk through chapter 23, as we work, we're going to work through a negotiation process that Abraham engages in to secure a burial plot for Sarah, not just for Sarah, but for his whole family. And as we work through that negotiation process, I want you to see that not everything is as it seems. There's more going on beneath the surface. So let's read this chapter. You can follow along with me quietly. Genesis 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, Canaan, and Abraham went into mourn for Sarah and weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb and hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of, this, of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, Hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron... In Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, 
Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, and the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that, it is in, that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how you speak to us through it. I pray that prayer often. I, I praise you for your word often. But how true it is that we get to hear from the living, almighty creator of the universe through what appear to be simple words on a page. Speak, Father, now as we listen. Use my words, Father, to communicate yours truthfully and accurately and our ears to hear them. Oh God, only by the power of your spirit are these things done. So we, we, we ask that you grant us that power this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The passage opens about 24 years after last week's passage, where Abraham took his teenage son up Moriah's height and prepared to offer him unto the Lord. 24 years have elapsed. Isaac is now about 24 years. Isaac is now 37. Abraham, being 100 years older than Isaac, is 137. And Abraham will go on to live another 38 years after chapter 23. But here in this chapter, in Hebron, blessed Hebron, the abundant years of Sarah's life come to their end, and she was 127 years old. You know, in the entire Bible, Sarah is the only woman whose lifespan is given. It highlights her incredibly significant role in God's redemptive plan through history. This woman, she is significant. The mother of covenant, the mother of nations, the mother of kings. And through her comes God's redemptive plan for the world. And she dies at 127 years. A long, well-lived life. People in the ancient Near, Near East, just as we see in a variety of places in the Bible, they were not afraid of the deepest expressions of sorrow. Loud weeping and tearing of clothes, sitting in dirt, maybe rubbing that dirt on their forehead or in their hair, wearing sackcloth, perhaps shaving their hair off. We see Job do all of those things when tragedy befalls him. And so when Abraham loses his beloved wife, the mother of nations and kings, his closest companion and fellow traveler for all these years, it's very likely that he's engaging in mourning just as passionate, weeping and tearing his clothes and shaving his head and sitting in dirt. Not only has Abraham lost his wife, Sarah, which is a, a deep pain in itself, but it comes with another pain, an immediate stabbing that comes with this wound. After all this time, after Abraham's accumulation of great wealth, he has nowhere to bury his wife. Nowhere to rest her bones. Maybe that doesn't sound painful to us. 
But our worldview is entirely different than the worldview that Abraham was living within. This is an incredible dilemma for him. And I'll try to explain how painful this would have been to Abraham. So ancient Near East families had burial sites. And these burial sites were very precious to them. They were, they were treasured possessions, these burial sites. Generations would be buried in that exact same location. And so you could go to this burial site and you could see the remains or the tombs of your ancestors perhaps hundreds of years back. This is a part of their identity, their legacy, their, their history. And if someone dies in one of these families that has a burial site, if they die in a place far away from the burial site, then the living family members will take great pains to take those family remains all the way back to the family burial site, undergoing great effort. Remember where Abraham came from? Ur, a thousand miles away, across the Fertile Crescent. As you may remember, Abraham buried his father, though, in the region of Haran, which is about 600 miles away. You see Haran right up here. This is a path somebody's going to take next week when we look at chapter 24. Abraham's family is is established now in Nahor, right next to, to Haran, on this map anyway. But tradition would therefore dictate that Abraham takes Sarah's remains, her body, and travel all the way back to that same site where he had buried his father, Terah, back, uh, back to the area of Haran. So it's a, it's, it would be an incredible undertaking and a huge journey, but something that would be very common for that age, to do that with a body. And yet Abraham does not want to return Sarah's body to the region of Haran, and it has nothing to do with the distance. It has nothing to do with the practicalities. It has everything to do with his faith. And that's what we want to see this morning. I hope you see what I mean as we continue. Look again at verse 3. In verse 3, we see Abraham rising and going to the Hittites, which means he's, he's... Uh, breaking his traditional or the traditional period of mourning. He's breaking that period of mourning to go secure a burial site for his wife, for his family in the promised land. And so he approaches these Hittites of Hebron. And in verse 4, we read, he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. I don't know if you remember, but all the way back in chapter 14, Genesis 14, Hebron was governed by the Amorites. These Amorites were allies of Abraham. They fought alongside him against an invading army. They, they were in battle together. But now it's, a, it's over 50 years later, and Hebron is under Hittite control. At least a portion of it is, which is an evidence that there's these constantly shifting power dynamics in Canaan, and nothing is really stable there. These power dynamics shifting is probably due to violent conflicts. And so when Abraham met with the Hittites of Hebron, they're way far away from their land. The Hittite empire, yes, it's still growing, but it's not going to reach its height for another 600 years. And even during its height, 
the very furthest extent, the very furthest borders of the Hittite empire will never reach down into the land that will become Israel. They're in Anatolia, in, in Turkey, in the northern portion of the Fertile Crescent, never down in where Israel is located. And so there's considerable debate among scholars, what in the world are land-owning Hittites doing all the way down in Hebron? That Abraham has to approach them. And I point that out because there's a bit of irony in Abram's exchange with the Hittites. Verse 4, he presented, Abraham presented himself as a foreigner, and yet it's likely that he's been living in the land of Canaan much longer than these Hittites of Hebron. Abraham's, Abraham has more claim, more right, more standing, more reputation than the Hittites of Hebron that he approaches. And so to see him call himself a foreigner or a stranger, whatever yours might say, a sojourner. This is a, an example of a faithful man not asserting himself in terms of power or in terms of wealth, though he could have. No, Abraham is asserting himself in terms of humility and meekness. He places himself intentionally at the very bottom of their social ladder. Look again, verse 4. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying the dead, burying your dead. So Abraham's been in Canaan for 60 years. Like I've said, he's accumulated incredible wealth. His name is renowned, and yet he calls himself a foreigner and a nomad. Choosing words carefully, approaching the Hittites without any sense of pretense, taking the path of peace. You know, with Abimelech, remember Abimelech from a few weeks ago? They come and have a dispute over water rights over well in Beersheba, and Abraham flexes his muscles a little bit with Abimelech to secure those water rights. But here, not at all. Total meekness. And clearly, this approach has an effect because the Hittites are moved by Abraham's appeal. They know who this man is. This man is well known in all of the land of Canaan. The title they applied to him appears to indicate the way that the Canaanites in general thought of Abraham, a prince of God among us. So they recognize Abraham as significant, but more than that, they recognize Abraham's God as God at least in some sense. And the Hittites offer Abraham the pick of all their best tombs. None of them will withhold. So they're they're saying, take whichever one you want, Abraham, even if it's one one of our own, we'll give it to you. And it appears like a very generous offer. But it's important to catch that there's this subtle turning and twisting and negotiating going on under the surface. Abraham wants to own his own property, his own land, his own burial ground for his family. But instead, the Hittites offer a choice tomb. Catch the warning of verse 6. Look at verse 6. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs, not yours, 
Not your tomb, our tomb. So they're basically offering a, a burial plot in a section of their own tomb. Right? A his and her gravesite. Additionally, if Abraham were to take them up on that offer and bury his wife's bones in their plot, then she's going to be surrounded by the dead of another family. I mean, much later in Mosaic law, that would be an abomination to bury your dead among pagans. So this offer is not at all what Abraham wants. It's not what he's looking for. The Hittites pretentiously, though politely, deny Abraham's request. But he's resolute. And he, they're putting on pretenses, but he puts all pretense aside. Abraham bows down low. He humbles himself even further. And in verse 7, we read, Abraham rose, so he was sitting with the nobles at the gate. He rose, and then he bowed down to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, and that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So Abraham bows. And it's significant. It's true. Abraham is a prince of God. But it's interesting that Abraham does not count his position a thing to be grasped. Just as he does not consider the land a thing to be grasped, though he certainly had the power to do all of that. And though the Hittites are abject pagans, he does not hate them for their evils. He does not hate them because they possess what God said is rightfully his. He does not hate them. Instead, Abraham graciously, humbly, meekly desires to gain their favor. He's trying to win them over peacefully rather than powerfully. And then he begins to hone in on this particular man. Right? He hones in on a particular Hittite to reveal the specific nature of his request. So it's clear that he came to this meeting with these intentions already in mind. He had a site picked out. Abraham desires Ephron's cave for his family's permanent burial site. And you can see it in his words. He's willing to pay any price for that plot of land. He says, name it. I'll pay it. It's a little bit of a hint of his substantial wealth. Very subtle flex. But by purchasing that cave, though, it would be clear in the sight of all the people that, was, that surround them, I'll talk about that soon, it would be clear in their sight that the ownership of that burial site would be his incontestably and for as long as that law governed that land. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So here again, we see it's happening at the city gates, and we, are, we should recognize by now, since we've been seeing this time and again, that the city gates were a place of importance. It's where the nobles of that city gathered, the rulers, and they governed, and they proclaimed judgments. 
It's where significant transactions legally happened right here at the city gates in the sight of the noblemen who judged on all matters. And Ephron stands up from among them. So Ephron is a noble, a Hittite noble from Hebron. And he offers not just the cave, but the whole field. Abraham said he wanted the cave at the end of the field. Ephron says, take the cave in the whole field. It's more than what Abraham asked. But that generosity masks a self-serving purpose. Notice how conscious Ephron is of those that are around him. In verse 10, he answers so that all the Hittite nobles hear him. And in the verse 11, we read, In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. So we've seen Abraham now demonstrate a heart that is humble and meek. But here is Ephron grandstanding. Yes, he's appealing to some cultural norms, but ultimately he's grandstanding. He wants his, his, intentions, his intentions are good, I believe, but he wants everybody to see just how good they are. Look how generous I am. I believe Ephron is seeking the applause of man. Now, this is a common characteristic of our day. People want to be seen as compassionate, as generous, as fighting injustice, And so they posture and pose, especially on social media, and they try to garner for themselves as many likes as possible, which we refer to as virtue signaling. But millennia before social media, virtue signaling still existed, and here's Ephron, the Hittite of Hebron, doing it. And yet remaining entirely unflappable, Before this grandstanding, Abraham bows himself again in meek humility. Verse 12, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, in other words, you're not listening to me, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. So we begin to see Ephron's self-serving intentions when Abraham rejects the gift. He doesn't want it. It's not helpful. And he knows that gifts can easily be rescinded, especially in ancient Canaan where the land was governed by the whims of men. Some commentators even see the possibility in Ephron's offer that by giving this gift publicly, he can take it back privately whenever it suits him. No, Abraham wants this to be legal. He wants it to be indisputable, contractual. He wants to possess this plot of land for his family's bones in a way that will not be compromised in the future. And so though we are seeing these undertones of self-interest and sly bargaining tactics, the Hittites do seem to generally regard Abraham well. They called him the son of God or the prince of God among us, and they mean it. And so it's not like they're out to get Abraham. But I think that the Hittites wouldn't be too upset if they gained an advantage over him. Which is the nature of a sinful world. People constantly trying to gain the upper hand with good intentions or bad, whether by force or polite sleight of hand. But Abraham is no fool. 
He knows what's going on, and he doesn't fall for any of it. He doesn't even take the enticement of free land. Imagine that. Somebody offers you free land. I would also be happy with that. But for a third and final time, after rejecting that offer, Abraham offers money. He urges them to accept his money, and he too wants witnesses. He wants people to hear. He wants people to see, but he wants that for legal purposes. He wants that to be binding. So if Ephron accepts, then the rulers of of Hebron will serve as his legal witnesses, which was the custom of the day. And in verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So finally, after asking three times, Abraham is given a price for the land he desired. And with this flourish of friendliness, might even say false friendliness, Ephron claimed it was worth 400 shekels of silver. 400 shekels of silver. Okay, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David refuses to accept a plot of land as a gift. He wants this land because he wants to build an altar on this land. And the land that he purchases, this particular plot of land, eventually becomes the place where the temple is built. Like we were looking at last week, it's very likely the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac, the same place, carried with it incredible significance. And so he didn't want to receive this as a gift. He didn't, he didn't think that was fair. He wanted to pay a fair market price for that plot of land. Do you know how much he paid? 50 shekels. 50 shekels for the summit of Mount Moriah. Ephron offers this insignificant small plot of land with a cave on it with far less, yeah, absolutely insignificant. He offers it for eight times the amount that David purchased the Temple Mount for. 400 shekels of silver. Now, it's true, a value of a shekel could change from city to city, from weight to weight, from age to age, but not eight times difference. That's a huge increase. So Ephron sees Abraham, and he has his heart set on this piece of land, that he is exceedingly wealthy. And he sees an opportunity to make bank. I imagine that when Ephron names this price, everybody, all of the nobles sitting there at the city gates, they're all like, their eyes get wide, they all look over to Abraham to see what he's going to do. But he doesn't hesitate. The sum is immaterial. Abraham has the money, clearly, and without hesitation, he goes over and he puts his silver on the scales. Likely, it's barely a dent for Abraham. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, and the field with the cave that was in it at the, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was all made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. That sounds redundant, doesn't it? 
It's almost painful to read it. But this is recorded in a formal manner of an ancient contract. So it's contractual language that we're reading there. Like that purchase is secure. And Abraham purchases the cave. He gets the field by the cave. And he gets all of the trees in the area. If you've purchased land before, did they count the trees on it? I doubt it. But remember, tall, old trees in the ancient Near East carried religious value. These trees may not have been either tall or old, but in time perhaps they, they would become tall and old. And it would be very important then to know who owns those trees. So it's significant that the trees are listed here as part of the land sale. So Abraham has received the land he come to get. He's maneuvered through this negotiation peacefully, meekly. And it probably cost him a lot more than it should have. But now he finally possesses a plot of land to bear. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Sarah's death and burial bookend a very lengthy negotiation process. The majority of chapter 23 is about this negotiation. I know in my Bible, chapter 23's heading is Sarah's death and burial, but it very well could read the negotiation. You might think to yourself, especially as we were working through the tedium of the negotiation, what's the point? What? Why, why is this important for me? What does this whole thing matter? And it is tedious to, to work through an ancient negotiation. Know this, though, if it's in the Bible, it's important. God wants us to know it, not just as pieces of information of how negotiations worked in the ancient Near East. No, he wants us to know this passage and how the negotiation went down because somehow through it, life comes to us. And so to do this, to understand this, we need to see what's significant within the negotiation, how it's linked to Sarah's death, peel back the surface layer to get to those deeper things. And I think we start by thinking about what is Abraham in this negotiation. If I were to sum him up in two words throughout this process of negotiation, negotiation it would be resolute and meek. He resolutely wants to own that particular piece of land, Machpelah's cave, and he doesn't want it as a gift, and he's not going to receive any, off, any other offer. That cave, that one, will be where his family's burial site will be established. Now, I hinted at earlier, this is not a matter of practicality. This is a matter of faith. Remember, Hebron the Oaks of Mamre, and now he's just east of the Oaks of Mamre. This is where he's met with God now numerous times. Significant spiritual moments happened in this area for Abraham and his family. In the past, the Amorites 
owned this land when Abraham first set up camp beside the Oaks of Mamre. Now the Hittites own the land, and eventually in biblical history, other Canaanites will come to own Hebron, and eventually the Jews will come to own Hebron. But Abraham knows that all these things are just passing waves. The plot of land and all the land surrounding it, that belongs to him. That's Abraham's land because God has sworn it as surely as God as holy. This is Abraham's land and the land of his descendants. And it's not Abraham's land to, it's not Abraham's lot to go out and acquire it, to make it his, to force people off of it so he can have it. That's not his lot, to take it by force. Instead, he chooses to make every legal effort to acquire this one tiny piece of land, the one, the only piece of land, of the promised land that Abraham will ever own in his life. A first glimmer of the fulfillment of God's land promise to Abraham is a place of death, a place where he will bury his wife's bones and where his bones will be buried. And I think that comes to Abraham. I mean, would he ever have thought some 50 years ago when God promised this land, would he ever have thought that the first measure that would come to him would be a burial plot? And yet in that place of death is this first glimmer of God's fulfilled promises. So he does this. He buys this land not merely so he can have a gravesite for his wife. But he does this because his wife's body doesn't belong to any other land. They don't belong in those foreign places. This is where she belongs. In the promised land. This is where he belongs. This is where his son belongs and his son's son and so on. They belong to this land because God has given it to them. And so by faith, Abraham is trusting that there will be a long lineage, even though he can't see past Isaac right right now. He trusts that there will be a family to bury there. By faith, he trusts this. And so by faith, he knows that he's buying a burial site, not just for Sarah, but for all of them. And by faith, in the most permanent way that he knows how, he is tying his body and his lineage to God and to God's promises. That's why Abraham's faith is so resolute in this passage. He's not, he's not doing a practical matter at the end of somebody's life. This is a move of faith that upends the expectations of the day to go somewhere else to bury the dead. And for this, for this resolution of faith, God honors Abraham. And just as Abraham believed, so it would become. On his deathbed in Egypt, these were the very last words of Jacob. Abraham's grandson. Then he, Jacob, commanded them, his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet onto his bed 
and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. To this day, Abraham's bloodline remembers this cave. After the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the cave of Machpelah, also known as the Cave of the Patriarchs, is the second holiest site to Orthodox Jews. Go back one image. This is the structure that is around the Cave of Machpelah, the traditional site of the Cave of the Patriarchs. You can see a menorah in the top there, and, and then you can forward again. And they say this is the very cave, the Cave of Ephron, where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah were all laid to rest. I said Abraham was meek. Abraham demonstrated his meekness as he was polite, as he was peaceful, as he bowed himself down and was humble. He humbled himself before these Hittites. And these Hittites had no real right over Abraham. So I wonder, do you know what biblical meekness is? What is meekness? I think society looks on meekness as like you're a doormat. But no, being meek is being stronger than somebody else, more powerful, having more resources, more leverage, but for their good, you choose not to use it. You lay your power aside. You choose that thing. Though you could choose that thing, you choose not to grasp at it, and you lay it aside. And of course, think of Christ hanging on the cross, and though he could have called down legions of angels and annihilated all of his enemies, in meekness he hung there. If Abraham was able to defeat an invading army, an invading force of four armies, and he has only grown more rich and more powerful since that time, then these displaced Hittites in Hebron would be an easy snack for Abraham. And yet he does not lift a finger against them. He instead uses the tools of peace to acquire that which was already rightfully his. Because Abraham is not hoping in power. He's not hoping in his wealth. He's not hoping in his rights. His hope is in the Lord. We Americans love to hope for our rights and claim our rights. Not a bad thing, but Abraham's hope is not in his rights. His hope is in the Lord. And he knows that God will make good on his promises. And he's not going to do it just for others, just for the descendants of Abraham. No, Abraham is trusting that he himself will enjoy the full promises of God. And he wisely believes that meekness is this path to greater reward. And so he lays aside what could be rightfully his, chooses the path of meekness because he knows God is bringing that greater reward. And Abraham's words are confirmed by the words of his greatest son, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek receive the greater reward. In meekness, Abraham was perching a small plot of land to bury his family, and yet God was giving him the earth. By Jesus' own words, all the children of Abraham... Everyone who believes in Christ and are united to Christ are given the same 
promise. In Christ we are meek, and by Christ we shall inherit the earth. But more on that in two weeks when we see Abraham move into death. In chapter 23, you might have noticed that God doesn't speak at all. He's almost entirely absent from the chapter. It's no coincidence. For in death, that's when it seems like God is the most silent. The death of his wife. It's only by faith that God is in and through everything as it is for Abraham when his wife Sarah dies. It is only by faith that these glories burst out of it. Now, though Abraham is offered these enticing options, some might even say exciting alternatives, what appear to be generous gifts, Abraham's focus is unswervingly resolute. And despite his divine claim to the very land he's trying to purchase and the substantial strength he has to get it, Abraham demonstrates meekness by taking the path of peace instead. These incredible attributes exist in Abraham because he's not looking to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. He's looking with the eyes of faith. He does not grasp at what he can take. He waits upon the Lord for what he has promised. I think that's maybe more than anything else what we should learn from chapter 23. That we would wait upon the Lord. Be resolute in faith as we wait for him. Function in meekness as we wait for him. When a loved one dies, it is God who gives voice to that silence and he gives life through his promises. And at the end of your life, when you feel like you have nothing to show, God is waiting with the earth. Psalm 39, we could read the whole psalm, but Psalm 39, I think, so well sums up the spirit beneath Genesis 23. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Yes, we are called to wait upon the Lord in the same way. Follow the faith of Abraham knew himself to be a sojourner, a wanderer, a waiter upon the Lord. Let us trust in the Lord. Father, I pray that as we consider these words, your words, help us to become more and more resolute in our faith. Not shifting, not shaken, not tempted away, but resolute, unswervingly, pursuing you and your promises. And as we do so, help us to be meek, humble, like Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in spirit, like Abraham, who bowed before those he had a claim over. May these things be true in our lives and in our hearts. And as we 
interact with the world around us. May they see in each one of us that we are princes of God among them. We are your sons and daughters. Your holy ones that you have called out of the darkness, given to us that holiness, sent us out as ambassadors. We wait for you, Father. We wait on your promises to make all things new as you are, as you are. I pray in Christ's name, amen.